we all love the gentle giant character trope, don't we? This, the, the, the character in the story who seems really tough on the outside, but really is just a big softy on the inside. Everyone loves that character. I think of like Hagrid from Harry Potter, or uh, the Incredible Hulk who cuddles kittens and, and bunnies sometimes, or even the late great Kobe Bryant, who is known for being so cutthroat on the basketball court, but off court was beloved for his kind and caring demeanor. But what about the opposite? What about the person who we believe to be just a big old teddy bear, but who actually has an unexpected edge to him? I think for many people that would describe Jesus of Nazareth. Do a quick Facebook poll and ask your friends what adjectives best describe Jesus. I think you're likely to turn up many of the lyrics to Charles Wesley's famous hymn, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. Kind, loving, gracious. And to be sure, Jesus was all of those things when the situation called for him. He was the compassionate, merciful Lamb of God, but he was also the Lion of Judah. Well did C.S. Lewis depict him in the Chronicles of Narnia as Aslan, the lion who isn't at all safe, but he's good. And so our Christology, our view of Jesus, has to make room for all of the really tough things that Jesus said and did in the Gospels, the Jesus who called people hypocrites and vipers and children of the devil and pronounced curses and woes on them, the Jesus who came not to bring peace but a sword and who called people to sell all their possessions and gouge out their eyes, the Jesus who talked about hell more than anyone else in the entire Bible. And those are just the runner-ups to the passages we're going to be examining, the top three toughest this morning. This morning is week eight of our Tough Text sermon series. We're going to focus in on Jesus and arguably the three toughest things that Jesus says in all of Scripture. And with each of these, there's a recurring adjective that comes to mind for me, and that's demanding. You see that in your bulletin. Jesus is demanding. And specifically, we're going to unpack three demands that Jesus makes of us in these three passages, and I'll offer you some practical applications with each. And then because demanding seems like such a negative character trait, we'll close by considering why it's actually such a good thing that Jesus is so demanding. But first, let's ask the Lord to guide our study together. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, we need your wisdom, your guidance, Holy Spirit, your uh, inspired interpretation and understanding of your word this morning. If left on our own, uh, we will respond as the world does to Jesus's radical, high call of discipleship, his, his radical, extreme claims of, of ownership he makes on our lives, we will reject, we'll, we'll push you away, we'll bristle. And so, Father, we know your word tells us we can only come to you if you draw us. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning, would you draw 
people? Would you draw hearts? Would you draw souls to yourself this morning? For your glory and for our eternal salvation and sanctification, we pray. Amen. Uh, Passage number one, tough Jesus. It's Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. We hear Jesus went away from there, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And Jesus answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Demand number one that Jesus demands of us is our humility. Jesus demands our humility. What makes this passage tough? Well, if you didn't know any better, you would think that Jesus was a racist. On that note, I'll make one last quick plug for our Race in the Church panel discussion tonight. 7 to 8.30, right here in the sanctuary. You won't want to miss it, but this passage is evidence that race in the church has always been an issue especially in the pre-church Jewish understanding of what it meant to be God's people. It meant to be other, meant to be separate, to be different. God had called his chosen people Israel to be distinct from the other nations, and so Israel often slipped in the Old Testament into this us versus them, we're better than you mentality. But what they missed in all that was Genesis 12. God had called them to be holy in order that they might be a blessing to all nations. It's true that Jesus says salvation is from the Jews in John 4 to the Samaritan woman at the well. And Paul explains the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So there's an, there's an order here, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile, because God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises to Abraham and his descendants. And yet Jesus has already healed the Roman centurion servant. In chapter 8 of Matthew's gospel, he's already preached to that Samaritan well, at the, at the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And so we know that there's more going on here with this Canaanite woman. What is he doing? Why does Jesus ignore her in verse 23 and dismiss her in verse 24 and then flat out insult her in verse 26? He calls her a dog. Make no mistake about it. What's he doing? Jesus is testing her. He has compassion on her the whole time. Jesus didn't have to be convinced to care for this woman, but he's testing her so he can teach his disciples. I imagine Jesus looking at them 
as he calls her a dog in verse 26. He's making eye contact with them as if to say, that's what y'all think of her, right? Y'all think she's a dog? It's a common Jewish slang used for Gentiles. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't use the typical Greek word for dog that referred to a mangy street mutt, but rather the term for a household pet. And so he metaphorically invites her into the house, into the metaphor to see how she will respond. Is she going to snap back? Dog? Who are you calling a dog? I'll show you a dog. Or will she respond at every turn in this passage in humility? Look at it. Verse 22, her cry, have mercy, implies humility. Mercy is by definition undeserved. John MacArthur notes she did not ask Jesus for help on the basis of her own goodness, but on the basis of his. That's what mercy is. And still in verse 22, she addressed Jesus as Lord. The Greek term is kurios, master, owner. It was a term used in slavery. It implies total humility, reverence, submission. Verse 23, Jesus ignores her, and yet she continues to cry out after him. Now she's gone beyond humility to humiliation. She will go as low as she needs to go to prove her love for her daughter and her belief in Jesus. In verse 25, after Jesus dismisses her, in verse 24, she comes and she kneels before him. Proskuneo is the Greek verb. Literally prostrates herself, face down, in the dirt, in utter humility. She begs him, Lord, help me. And yet, still, Jesus refuses in verse 26. And he calls her a dog. The final test of her humility. How will she respond? Verse 27, she replies, yes. Yes, you're right. You're right, Jesus, to call me a dog. Compared to you and your holiness, your perfection, I am as undeserving of your time, of your attention, of your power, of your healing, of your mercy, of your salvation, as a dog is undeserving of the family dinner. And yet... Even the dogs got to eat. And her response proves not only her humility, but her faith as well. She essentially says, Jesus, this is nothing for you. Just give me the crumbs. Healing my daughter is table scraps to you. All you have to do is snap your fingers, say a word, and she'll be healed. And so, in verse 28, he does. And she is healed. A woman, great is your faith. You pass the test. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Friends, Jesus promises this morning to save those, but only those who come to him in humility. Mark 2.17, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician. If you come here this morning and you're healthy, You can leave now. It's those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Churches are hospitals for broken people. He illustrated this most powerfully in his parable 
of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so I ask you this morning, friends, which one are you? Which are you? Do you acknowledge how undeserving you are? Do you realize that God doesn't owe you anything? We live in an entitlement society today. It's great that people in America aren't starving to death anymore. It's great that if you got in an accident on the highway, on the road home, they'd rush you to the hospital and they'd treat you, no questions asked. But the cost of that is that we become spoiled rotten. We feel entitled. We feel like we're owed something, like we're owed everything. There are no more privileges today. Everything is a right. Food, housing, education, health care. The world says, you deserve it. Jesus says, not with me you don't. I don't owe you anything. I didn't owe you the life I gave you freely. I don't owe you the breath in your lungs that you take for granted every second of the day. I don't owe you your job, your loved ones, your health, the clothes on your back. Every single thing you have, friends, do you realize it's an undeserved gift from God? And it should be received as such in humility. And so three quick application points here. Number one, will you cry out? This Canaanite woman is relentless. She's like the woman from Jesus' parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. We won't have time to read the whole thing, but the summary is even a jerk can be annoyed into doing the right thing. How much more so with God? Jesus says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Pastor Thad preached about unanswered prayer a few weeks back now. I wonder how many times we mistake for God's no what is actually God's not yet. Because we give up. And if we would just keep begging we would realize that God wants to give us a yes, but he wants us to cry out for us. Cry out for it. Matthew 7, Jesus says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. If he asks him for fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And yet, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when? When you seek me with all your heart. Why does God make us beg? Why does he make us search to the depths of our hearts and beg in humility, face down sometimes, because his ultimate aim isn't 
our temporary satisfaction in the things of this world. It's our eternal satisfaction in Him. And when we cry out to God in humility, it forces us to lean not on ourselves, but on Him. Number two, will you kneel? Man, I would love to see more folks in our corporate worship during our corporate time of confession on Sunday mornings on the floor. Psalm 133 says, If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I know some of y'all would have a tough time getting back up off the floor, looking at y'all in the back row, so we won't hold it against you. But brothers and sisters, that is our right posture in worship. Confession cannot be a weekly Sunday morning thing for us. We are far too sinful and too needy for that. It, it can't just be confessing what I've done. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. You understand the difference? Psalm 51.5 says we're born sinners. Romans 3.12 says we're sinful to our very core. Confession isn't just a list of my bad deeds then. It's a state of being. It's a humble recognition before the Lord that I don't even deserve to come into your holy presence. And yet, James 4.10, if we humble ourselves before the Lord, what does he promise? He'll exalt us. That is how I'm able, Hebrews 4.16, to boldly approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. It is solely because of the one to whom every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess. Jesus is Lord. We don't forget that. And number three, will you believe? Will you cry out? Will you kneel? And will you believe? If God still doesn't give you what you're asking, what you're begging for, will you respond like the Canaanite woman here in verse 26? You're right, Lord. I don't deserve it. I, don't, I shouldn't even be asking because I don't deserve it. And yet, will you also respond like her and say, Jesus, even if you don't get it, I'll still believe. I still trust you. I trust your promises. Romans 8, 28, to work all things together for my good. Psalm 84, 11, that no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so God, if you are withholding it from me, I trust that it must not be good for me right now. Because my faith is not tied to the good things you give me, but to the good God I know you are. Come what may. Will you cry out, kneel, and believe? Passage number two, tough text from Jesus, is Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Demand number two, Jesus demands our obedience. Demands our obedience. What makes this passage tough because apparently there are going to be people who can predict the future, who can perform exorcisms, 
and who can perform miracles. That's what they claim here. And Jesus doesn't reply, no, you didn't, you liar. They did it. They did mighty works. And in his name, and they confessed him as Lord while they were doing it. Their theology is sound, and yet they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Now, that should cause everyone in this room who has not performed an exorcism or worked a miracle lately, show of hands, that should give us great pause. We should ask along with Jesus' disciples in Matthew chapter 19, who then can be saved? We need to feel the weight of that question this morning, friends, because only when we do can we feel the weight of Jesus' reply. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, that's the problem with these orthodox miracle workers. They are presumably standing before the judgment seat of God, uh, before whom we all will one day appear, and he has presumably just asked them the question that he will ask Every one of us on that day, why should I let you into heaven? And look at the response. Look at what they point to. My prophecies, my exorcisms, my miracles, my volunteering, my tithing, my baptism, my church membership, my church attendance, I'm a good person. Friends, if your answer to that question on that day starts with the word my, you are in serious trouble. Because nothing of yours will measure up to God's standard of perfection required for admittance into heaven. Matthew 5.20, Jesus makes this clear. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In case it was still unclear, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You say, wait a minute. I thought you just told me that Jesus demanded my obedience. I thought that was the point of the passage. And sure enough, that is Jesus' beef here with these orthodox miracle workers. He calls them workers of lawlessness, verse 23. They have not done the will of his Father in heaven, verse 21. And so what is the law? What is God's will? Jesus answers for us in John chapter 6. And the crowd asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And he answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. 1 John 3.23, this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That is God's will for you, friend. That is God's law. That's his command. Believe. Repent and believe. That is your obedience. That is the obedience of faith. And faith is a relationship. Notice Jesus' language here. He says, depart from me. I never knew you intimate, relational language, faith, true faith, saving faith isn't so much about what you know as it is who you know. So I ask you this morning, you might know about Jesus. Do you know Jesus? 
John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Relationships are a two-way street. It's about knowing and being known. So Jesus says in John 10, 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And that's why God left us two primary spiritual disciplines, internalizing scripture and prayer. It is knowing God as he has revealed himself in his living word and making ourselves known to him in prayer. Because as every person who's married or just in any relationship knows, the the key to any healthy relationship is what? Communication. And so I ask you this morning, in humility, how is your relationship with the Lord? If you were going to try and illustrate it in human terms, would you say that you're like the couple who really care about each other, and you both know it you know, deep down, but life is just really busy right now, if you're honest, and you struggle to prioritize the relationship as much as you know you should. Perhaps some of you feel like you and God are the cold, distant couple who barely even talk anymore. You live in separate bedrooms. Let me assure you this morning, friends, the good news is that God wants so much more for you, so much more with you than that. He wants a loving, living, vibrant, active, communicative relationship. Sometimes when people come to faith, they say, I found God and I have no idea what they're talking about because I can't find anywhere in the Bible that God ever mentions hiding. I don't know about your testimony, but my story was one where I was the one running, I was the one hiding, and he left the 99 to come find me. Amen? Anybody else? Let's wake up. And yet relationships are a two-way street. They're still a two-way street, and you get out what you put in. I couldn't expect to have much of a relationship with Polly if I worked 70 or 80 hours a week and never saw her. So your obedience starts with the obedience of faith, but that's just the wedding It doesn't end there. You've got a whole marriage ahead of you now to look forward to, and that's a glorious thing, living relationship with the living God of the universe. But even the best of relationships, even with God, still take work. And so I ask you again, what are you doing to strengthen your relationship with the Lord? I want to give you a new tool that might help. If you're a regular here, you'll notice the backside of your tear-off card in your bulletin for this morning looks different, where it used to just say prayer request. Now you'll see a space for sermon application. We don't ever want to be hearers of the word only at West Hills. James 1.22, we want to be doers of the word. Sermons aren't like social media posts where you can just click like and get that dopamine fix and then move about your, your busy day. Sermons are supposed to change you. If they don't, if God's word doesn't change you, then either I haven't done my job or you aren't doing your job or God hasn't done his job. And we know the Holy Spirit's going to show up and do his job. And I might not have put in 70 or 80 hours, but I, I think I'm doing my job. Right? 
And so this is a tool to help you make sure that you're doing yours and responding to Jesus' demand of obedience on your life. Would you just, going forward from here on out, we'll keep it in the bulletin, consider jotting down at the end of each Sunday morning together one way, one or two ways, that you feel God calling you, convicting you, challenging you, encouraging you to respond to his word the next week. And you can tear that card off and you can turn it in just like you do your prayer request. If you do, it'll stay between me, you, and the Lord. The rest of the prayer team won't see those. Uh, You can stick it in your Bible or your pocket if you want to be tangibly reminded of your commitment throughout the week. But here's what I think that'll do. Three just quick benefits for you. Number one, if you write something down, you're more likely to actually do it. That's just a sociological principle. Number two, if you write it down and turn it into me especially, you're even more likely to actually do it because I might just lovingly check in with you throughout the next week, especially if you are a member here at West Hills and you've explicitly asked me as your pastor, invited that kind of accountability, that kind of encouragement in your walk with the Lord. And lastly, number three, you might just encourage me too because we pastors, preachers, sometimes battle insecurity up here wondering if anyone's even listening. I can see y'all dozing off. I, I can hear in my mind all the amens I would be giving myself if I was out there. <laughs> I, is anyone listening, much less applying the message? And so I would be really encouraged to see the different ways that God is speaking to you and changing you through his word each week. Lastly, Tough text number three, maybe the toughest of all, is Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. We hear, now great crowds accompany Jesus, and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, hate his own wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not First sit down and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Simply put, Jesus says, you better count the cost if you want to follow me. Because demand number three Jesus demands our unrivaled devotion. Our unrivaled devotion. Jesus has got John Legend on the soundtrack, except when Jesus sings, you give me all of you, Jesus means it. Jesus means like all, all of you. Heart, sign, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says elsewhere, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
in Luke chapter 16. He says it about money. He says it here in chapter 14 about your family. It's true of your career success, your comfort, your desire for control, for pleasure, for approval, whatever your idol of choice is, friends, Jesus is clearly saying here, you got to pick. It's me or that thing, me or that person. Who's more important? Because with Jesus, divided hearts need not apply. You take the person or the thing that you love most in this world and you stack it up against your adoration for Jesus. And if by comparison, that love doesn't look like hatred, you cannot be my disciple. You are not really a follower of me. You're not a Christian. The parallel passage from Matthew makes it even more clear. Matthew says, whoever loves father or mother more than me Love son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We just get honest this morning. I don't know about y'all, but there are some days in my life, many days, when I'm not sure that I passed that test. I love my daughter too stinking much. If I had to choose between her and in Jesus, on my worst days, I pray I never have to make that choice. But I think this is where we got to go back to Matthew 19, 26. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible because the kind of unrivaled devotion to Jesus that he demands of me cannot come from me. God has got to give me that kind of heart after his own heart. I think that's the point that Jesus is making here in the two illustrations he uses. Verse 28 when he says, building a tower that never gets completed, what would have immediately come to mind for every first century Jewish listener? Tower of Babel from Genesis 11. And why did their effort fail? Because Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it in labor, they labor in vain. Verse 31, a king not able to defeat an army of 20,000 with his army of 10,000 would have immediately brought to mind for them all the times in the Old Testament when God led their ancestors, the Israelites, outnumbered into battle just to prove that he was stronger than any army. Most notably, Judges 7, when God commands Gideon to send 32,000 troops home, the greatest troop scale down of all time, so that when the 300 Israelites defeat 15,000 Midianites, there won't be any question about how they did it. The chances of me loving anything more than my daughter are 15,000 to one. In my own strength. Those are camel through the eye of a needle kind of odds. On my own, it's impossible. But praise God with him that all things are possible 
we can actually give Jesus the unrivaled devotion that he demands from us, the devotion that he deserves from us. And here's your conclusion. He does deserve it. No one else, nothing else in this world deserves to sing to you. You give me all of you because nothing else, no one else has given their all to you, but Jesus did. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. I had a friend this past week who gave her kidney away to a virtual stranger. If she had died on the operating room table, I think we would all agree she would deserve some of his devotion. But at best, she bought him an extra 20 to 25 years on this earth. And at most, it cost her the next 30 to 35 years of her life on this earth. Friends, while you were not his friend, while you were a sinner, an enemy of God, he paid the infinite price. His precious blood for your salvation to purchase for you eternal life. 1 John 4.10 This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And it is because of that love, because of his love, can't be my devotion to, to God. I can't give him the devotion and the affection he deserves from me. It's got to be God's love in me for himself. So now in verse 19, we can actually love God back and give him the devotion he demands and deserves because he first loved us. Verse 19, he first loved us. It cost him everything. It cost Jesus everything, and so it will cost you everything your unrivaled devotion, your entire life, you must, by comparison, hate even your own life, Jesus says. You must lay it down and pick up your cross in order to follow me. The cost is great, friends. It will cost you your life, your old life. But here's the good news. Your old life wasn't that good anyway. Amen? His promise to you this morning is just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what he purchased for you. He purchased a new life, a better life, life to the fullest, life eternal with him in paradise forever. And it's better in this life too, by the way. And so maybe the better question for you and me this morning is have you counted the cost of not following him? Let's pray.